Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. We spent a couple of months this summer looking at various passages from the book of Proverbs, but now we are going to switch back to where we were in Luke chapter 13, and we'll pick up the reading where we left off. Luke 13, beginning in verse 22. Please give your full attention to God's inerrant word. Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. If you were given a time machine so that you could travel to any point in the past history or to any point in the future, where and when would you travel to? Would you be kind of like a time travel tourist and try to jump around to different places and times to see great events of history or to see what's going to happen in the future like a tourist? or? Would you try to change things in the present by going back to the past and changing the past so you have a different present? Or maybe by going to the future so that you know the future so that you can change the present? As you think about the way that you would respond to that opportunity if it were given to you, I think about Marty McFly. Marty McFly had the opportunity in Back to the Future, those great works of art, those trilogy. In that, in that scenario, Marty had a time machine, had the opportunity to go anywhere, but what's interesting is that everywhere he went had to do with his concern for himself, his family, and his friends. He went back to the past and had to take care of issues with his parents and to save himself and his siblings. He went to the future out of concern for his kids. And he went back to the 1800s out of concern for his friend, Doc Brown. It was just interesting to me that what drove him was not to fly around through history in the future like some kind of tourist, but to care for the people that he loved, to find out how they would turn out in the future or to help them in the past or to help them in the present. 
Well, today I would like for you to go along with this passage of scripture and time travel to a, probably one of the greatest events in all of history. As you look at history from when it begins in the Garden of Eden to when it ends at the end of Book of Revelation, one of the great events is the Day of Judgment. When Christ will return and he will set things right. He will do away with death. He will do away with suffering. He will do away with Satan and the kingdom of darkness. And he will make creation what it was intended to be, perfect. And he will gather together his people. He will gather together all people at the moment of judgment. He will be the one seated on the throne. And the scriptures tell us he will divide all people like the sheep from the goats. And he will bring his people, the ones whom he has saved, into the eternal kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. Essentially, that's what Jesus does in this passage. He transports his listeners, provoked by a simple question, from the present to the future, to the day of judgment, and actually just beyond the day of judgment, and asks them to consider what reality will be not just for the universe, but for them individually after that great day of judgment. He is asked by someone in a crowd that he's teaching, he's in a small village on his way to Jerusalem to go to the cross, and someone, as he's teaching, cries out and asks him a question that's they're dying to know how he would handle it. Lord, will those who are saved be few? In other words, when judgment day comes, Will there be many in the eternal kingdom or there will, will there be few? And what's interesting is we know from historical records that this was a hot theological topic of the day among the Jews. The Jewish rabbis debated it. Will there be many in the kingdom or just a few? The Mishnah, which was the uh, collection of Jewish rabbi teachings, not it wasn't scripture to the Jews, but it was the honored teachings, the traditions, and the teachings of the rabbis. The Mishnah contained this quote. It said, all Israelites will have a share in the world to come. But of course, in order to be at all faithful to the Old Testament, they had to acknowledge that some in Israel would not be in that eternal kingdom. And so they gave, after that statement, they gave a long list of exceptions. The ones who were not faithful Jews, the ones who were truly wicked, the really bad people obviously would not be in that eternal kingdom. And of course, the Jewish rabbis by and large taught that very, very few Gentiles would be in this kingdom. Those who were not of the Jewish race, those who were not Israelites, the Gentiles would be in the outer darkness. They would be lost. Well, Jesus, obviously, in his teaching, if you remember working through the book of Luke, in his teaching, he'd make clear that he was challenging those traditional ideas, challenging many of the Jewish people who, to whom was his primary ministry during his three years of ministry on earth, challenging the Jewish people to say many who thought that they were right with God based on their works were not actually right with God. And so I think that's why he gets this question. Well, Rabbi, and I'm assuming this questioner is looking at Jesus as a respected rabbi. He said, Rabbi, where do you stand on this theological hot topic? Are you a big tent rabbi or are you a small tent rabbi? You think there's going to be many? Do you have a broad definition of who's going to be 
in this eternal kingdom, or do you think of it being a very narrow, small group of people? Well, little, little did the listeners know that as Jesus answered that question, he was the one who not only knows the future perfectly, but he's the one who controls the future. And he is the one who will be on that throne of judgment on that great day, dividing people between the sheep and the goats. As you think about that day yourself, if you were able to time travel to be at that day, wouldn't it be great if you just get a peek at that book of life? The Bible talks about a book of life that has the names of the redeemed, those who are saved. Wouldn't it be great to get, just get a peek at that book, see who's in there, see who's not in there? But Jesus doesn't answer that way. He doesn't really answer the question directly, does he? He doesn't talk about the number of people who will be saved. But he does tell us two things that we need to know about Judgment Day and the eternal kingdom of God. Jesus uses his familiar imagery, one of his favorite ways of talking about the eternal kingdom after his second coming, after Judgment Day. He often related it to a wedding feast because scripturally speaking, Old and New Testament presents to us Jesus Christ as the bridegroom of the church. The church is the bride. Jesus is the bridegroom. The bridegroom has gone away, but he is coming back to take the bride to himself. And that second coming of Christ, he always often used that imagery of the great wedding feast. The book of Revelation calls it the wedding feast of the lamb who was slain. And that wedding feast, he will call his people to himself and they will live in perfection for eternity. And so he uses the imagery in this passage as he talks about the state of things after his judgment day. He uses the imagery of the wedding feast. And actually, the, the, the evening, usually the wedding ceremony was during the day. All the family and friends and loved ones gathered for the wedding ceremony. But then they would all gather, large group, come together in a large home, and they would have this grand banquet to celebrate. Often it went on for days to celebrate this wedding. But Jesus doesn't focus in this passage on those that are at the feast. He focuses on those that are left outside. It's very similar to the parable of the ten virgins who were waiting for the bridegroom to come as part of the wedding party, so to speak, but they didn't bring enough oil. They didn't prepare. And so when the bridegroom comes, they had left to get more oil. They are left out. And in that parable, he wants us to consider, are we prepared for his coming or aren't we? Jesus here talks about those who are left out, those who are not able to enter into the wedding feast, those who have been rejected at judgment as being in the outside in the darkness, that outer darkness. He says they are weeping and gnashing their teeth, and that's verbiage that Jesus uses to talk about hell in many of his teachings. Weeping, not out of repentance and sorrow over sin, but weeping in hopeless despair for being lost. Gnashing of teeth because they're angry and bitter. They're not sorry before God. They're not repentant, they're angry at God and bitter for the state that they find themselves in for eternity. I want you to realize that as we dig into this passage of scripture, 
This scripture is directed at people who were in what we would call the visible church of Jesus' day. The words of this teaching are directed at Jewish people. Jesus primarily went to the towns and villages of Judea and even Galilee primarily to, to reach the Jewish people because to them had been given all the blessings and benefits of the old covenant. And so he's talking to people from that perspective. He's talking to people who, by and large, as we know, as we read the gospels, by and large, these people put their trust in their ethnic heritage, their family background. They were born Jews, so they must be right with God. They must be part of the eternal kingdom to come. They, by and large, were faithful Jewish people. They tried to keep the Old Testament law. They observed all the religious rituals. They offered the blood sacrifices and the grain offerings and the tithes. They went to the temple. They listened to the teachings of the rabbis. They even did many things that they could point to as good works in their families and in their communities. And yet, these are the people that Jesus is warning say, you're outside. You're not, in, you're not in the room. You're not part of the feast in spite of all those things that you point to. So who does this passage speak to today? I would hazard to guess that it speaks to directly to maybe somebody here this morning. I would say probably this morning because almost every church on any given Sunday morning has people who are faithful by all of those criteria, maybe come from a good Christian background, come to church regularly, maybe even involved in a Bible study, maybe even serve on a ministry committee, but yet they're still outside. They're not truly part of God's people because they have not entered the way that God has provided. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in the outer darkness after the great judgment day for many people who are going to be very, very surprised to find themselves there. And those are the people that this passage is seeking to reach today as a warning. Two things we need to know from this passage. First of all, there is only one narrow, specific, exclusive way into that eternal wedding feast. Into that eternal kingdom, there's only one specific narrow way. The central image of this passage that Jesus lays before us is the narrow door. The way in is a narrow door. It should remind us what he says here of what he said in the Sermon on the Mount, probably a passage that's more familiar to you from Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where he said, Enter by the narrow gate. For, wide is, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it are many. But the, for the gate that is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Do you notice there he actually answers the question more directly. He expects few to actually enter through the narrow gate into the wedding feast and into the eternal kingdom. 
looking at all the human beings who have ever lived and all who have ever lived will stand before Christ on that day and the day of judgment. Many will have taken the wide and easy way offered by this world and will have rejected the hard, narrow way to life. J.C. Ryle is reading his commentary on this passage and he makes one little brief powerful statement in light of that. That looking at the mass of humanity, many are going to be lost in outer darkness, weeping and gnashing their teeth, and few will be saved in the eternal kingdom. Art J.C. Ryle says it's an awful conclusion. It's an awful conclusion. Probably one of the hardest things. When I talk to people about what are the hard things in Scripture, a lot of hard things in Scripture, a lot of things we struggle with in Scripture. The problem's with us, not with Scripture, by the way. But when we see these hard things in Scripture, nothing is as hard as saying that vast majority of people who have ever lived are going to be lost because they didn't enter by the narrow way. Keep in mind, though, as a little bit of encouragement, that the Apostle John was given a glimpse of the future in the book of Revelation. The Apostle John was given a glimpse into heaven in his day. And when he saw those who had already died and gone in faith to be with the Lord in heaven, he said, I saw a multitude that no one could number. So there will be many in the eternal kingdom. But compared to all who ever lived, only few. In John chapter 10, Jesus talked about a door, a door into the sheepfold. It's a different imagery. It's not the wedding feast. It's a door into the sheepfold. Those who were truly sheep belonging to the good shepherd come into the sheepfold by the door. And he says in John chapter 10, verse 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. If you could see the door into the wedding feast, if you could see the door into the eternal kingdom, it would be shaped like Jesus Christ because he is that door. He is the way in. The door is narrow, he says. Narrow in the sense that it is specific, it is exclusive. There are no exceptions. There is only one way in, specifically through faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning work. Contracts are specific. They need to be. They have to have very specific legal languages because people always try to find loopholes to get out of contracts. But contracts are very specific. Covenants in Scripture are very specific. And God sets the terms. And the terms are Jesus Christ and his atoning work. Old Testament worship, I'm sure that if you've done any reading in the Old Testament, one of the fascinating things is the difference between Old Testament worship and New Testament worship. In the Old Testament, you had these elaborate ceremonies, rituals, sacrifices, ties. Everything is spelled out in incredible detail. What the priests wore is spelled out in incredibly detail. Everything the priest did is spelled out in detail. Even the tabernacle and later the temple 
all the instructions are given directly by God in specific detail. So when an Old Testament believer comes to worship God, it is explicit, it's exclusive, it's specific instruction given on how it must be done. And if you willfully chose to do it any other way, we know from several examples in the Old Testament, you risk being struck dead. It was so important that you come to God exactly in detail the way he's instructed. Then we get to the New Testament. And we have all these things that we debate about in the church. Well, what should you wear? Should you wear a sport coat? Should you wear a tie? Should you wear a dress? Should you wear nice slacks? Is it okay to wear jeans? Is 11 o'clock the right time or 10.30 the right time? Are the blue seats right or the red seats right? Is it this hymn or that? You go to the New Testament, none of that detail is there. Why? Because the detail in the Old Testament is about Christ and the gospel, not about the mechanics of worship. Those details had to be so specific because every single detail pointed to Jesus Christ and what he came to do to die on the cross for our sins. There was only one way in. God said in Ezekiel chapter 18, the soul who sins shall die. Die physically and ultimately die spiritually for eternity. But he provided a way of grace a way of forgiveness, a way to be reconciled. He mentions it in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. The life of the flesh, the life of the human body is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Guilt, shame, your record of sin is only covered when the blood of a living sacrifice is offered in your place and that blood covers your sin. It atones your sin. It reconciles you to God. That is the specific way, the only way, the exclusive way by which you may come to God. And so Hebrews chapter 10, reflecting back on how Jesus Christ, God the Son, come in human flesh, living a perfect life in our midst, going to the cross and dying in our place. He reflects on that and says this, but in these, speaking of the Old Testament sacrifices, the animal sacrifices, the blood of the bull and the goats, he says, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We have been sanctified, he says, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Therefore, brothers, he says, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. There is no other way. It is specific. It is exclusive. It is the narrow door. The way in is narrow because it is only Jesus Christ and his atoning blood. That's why Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And as we saw earlier, I am the door. No one comes to the Father except through him. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 9, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Because there is only one way. One narrow door. In verse 28, Jesus says that one of the reasons that these people that are outside are weeping and gnashing their teeth, weeping in despair 
gnashing their teeth and angry is because they somehow are seeing the blessing of God's saved people, those who truly came by the narrow door. He says that they're going to see their beloved patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, seated at the table, fellowshipping with the Lord for eternity. They're going to see their great prophets, men like Elijah and Elisha, Isaiah and Jeremiah, seated at the table with the patriarchs and all the saints of all the ages, celebrating reconciliation and eternal salvation with Christ. They're going to see that. And they're going to mourn deeply. Instead of what they thought about the kingdom, they thought that the kingdom of God in eternity was going to look like almost all the Jews. Some of the really bad Jews wouldn't make it, but most of the vast majority of the Jews would be there. And maybe a few of the Gentiles who became Jewish would be there, but everybody else would be lost. Actually, the reality is some of the Jews, a small portion of the Jews percentage-wise who have ever lived will be there because they came through the narrow door. They accepted the Messiah that was promised. They trusted in his shed blood. And they're part of the eternal kingdom, but the vast majority of the eternal kingdom is going to be made up of people from the east and the west and the north and the south, the Gentiles that are called through the gospel. You know, they, they really have to struggle with the idea that they thought they were going to be there. That's going to make eternity longer and harder for those who are in the Old Testament church, the nation of Israel, who are shut out because they didn't come the way that God provided to be reconciled to him, as well as those of the New Testament church who thought that their good works, thought their church attendance, thought their family relationships might bring them into the kingdom, and yet they end up outside weeping and gnashing their teeth. They're going to struggle to understand how could this be. I reminds me of my own testimony, how I came to know the Lord by his grace. I was raised in a really good family, a family that was much respected in my small town. We were good people. We went to church every Sunday, never missed. We went to one of those churches that didn't preach the Christ of the Bibles, the Christ of the Bible. We went to a church that was more of a religious social club, but we were faithful. We were there every week. We called ourselves Christians. We thought of ourselves as Christians. My dad was even on the council of my church. But then my brother, that I, the one I really grew up with, I'm the two youngest of us grew up together, and he went, when I was in high school, he went here as a freshman at Penn State. And in his sophomore year, he was led to the Lord by one of his roommates and gave his life to Christ, entered through that narrow gate, that narrow door. And then he came home for his Thanksgiving vacation. And when all the family was gathered around the table at the Thanksgiving meal, he announced, I've given my life to the Lord. I'm a Christian. And it unnerved me to the very core of my being because I could see he was different. And I wondered, wait, if he wasn't a Christian before and he lived like I live now, but he is one now, what does that say about me? And that 
tearing down of my soul is what the Lord used to drive me to Scripture to find out what he found that I didn't know about. And I came to understand who Christ is and why he died on the cross for me, for my shame, for my guilt, for my sins. You know, it's much more shocking to the Jews and the idea that those who didn't know Christ, the Gentiles, that they would be in this kingdom because they came through that narrow door that they didn't recognize. He said, Jesus said, some who are first will be last and some who are first, last will be first. You know, often when he uses that, that's one of his favorite phrases. You see it many times in the Gospels. Often when he uses that, he's talking about people who are rich and powerful and have it all going for them in this life, that they are first in the eyes of this world, but in the kingdom of God, they will be last because they didn't come through the narrow door. Their success, their, their prosperity is in this world, not in the world to come. They didn't come through the narrow door. But actually, in this context, when he uses that phrase, the first will be last, the last will be, shall be first, he's actually talking about the people in the Old Testament church, the, the Jewish people who thought they were first, said many will be last. They were the people who had all the privileges. According to Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul says, they're the ones who had the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the worship, the promises. They had all the privileges. They thought they were first but they will end up outside weeping and gnashing their teeth because they didn't trust in the Messiah that God sent. They didn't trust in the blood that was shed to atone for our sins. In chapter 14, in a few weeks, we're going to look at another parable. It's a very similar parable that Jesus tells about a great banquet. And he says, the master of the house invited all of these people, the people he knew, he, you know, the people that, that uh, were expected to come to the banquet, and none of them came. They all had excuses why they couldn't come to the banquet. And so he sent his servants out, go out and find the, the lame, the crippled, the blind, bring them in. And when they said there were more seats after that, they said, well, go out to the highways and the hedges and, and bring in the people out, really outside, bring them in. There's a picture of the kingdom of God that many who were invited, those who had, were part of the old covenant community, the, the Israelite nation, so many of them were lost and God brought in those who were willing, those who were willing to humble themselves and recognize that they could not save themselves, but God had to save them through Christ. All who come through the narrow door are welcome at the feast. All who come through the narrow door are part of that eternal kingdom. Which brings me to the second thing you need to know. Don't worry about it. I only have two points, not three. The second thing you need to know is that that narrow door is closing. There's a time frame that is running out and that door will close. And once the door closes, there is no hope. Jesus takes us to a time, in verses 24 and 25, he takes us to a time after that narrow door is closed. He says, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, they will not be able to enter. He pictures many of, that were listening to him on that day. He pictures many of them as being outside, wanting desperately to enter because they realized too late that they didn't enter through the narrow door. 
They want to enter not because they love God and want to repent and have faith. They want to enter because in their despair, they realize they are lost forever. I don't know. There's some parables that Jesus tells that gives kind of the sense that those who are lost for eternity will be aware of these blessings that the, that the redeemed will know in the eternal kingdom and that will add to their eternal suffering. But this picture of people pleading to come in out of despair is heartbreaking when you think about it, isn't it? When I was a kid, we had a multi-volume set of illustrated Bible stories for kids. And I used to look at that all the time when I was a kid. And one of the pictures, one of the illustrations that has stuck with me to this day is a picture of Noah's Ark floating on the rising flood waters after God sends the worldwide flood. And all around the ark, there are people clinging to the tops of trees, the tops of mountains, and flailing around trying to stay afloat in the rising waves of the flood. But they can't get in the ark because, as the scripture tells us in the book of Genesis, God shut the door. And there was no hope for them. They had ignored the warnings Peter says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Noah had given them warnings and they had not responded in faith. For many will seek to enter and not be able to. When does that door close? It is closing. When will it be completely closed? When you die. And there's nobody in this room who knows if you're going to be alive by 6 o'clock tonight. You don't know. If you have a day left, a week left, a year, 10 years, that door is closing. Or maybe Christ will come back. Maybe the door will close for everyone because he'll come back and there'll be no more opportunity. Jesus wants us to know that that door is closing. The merely religious on that day will understand. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Most of the tongues that confess that are going to be people who realize it too late because they are destined for eternal judgment. J.C. Ryle, again, says, hell is nothing but truth known too late. Jesus is the master of the house. We know that because he says in verse 26, we, the people, they say to him, you know, that they, they're going to be outside. They're going to say, how could that be? They'll say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. He had come to their villages. He had done miracles. He had given teaching. They'd even sat at parties and meals with him. They knew of him. They were acquaintances of Jesus, but they did not know him and he did not know them. There was no relationship there because Jesus says, I do not know where you come from. Just another way of saying what he says over in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, he's talking about people even that were part of the early church. As the church was forming, as Jesus gathered his apostles to himself, he said that on that day, on judgment day, he says, not everyone who says to me, this is Matthew 7, beginning verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They did not enter through the narrow door. 
They trusted in their good works. And they were lost, left outside. They were like many today in the church. There are churches. Some churches have more, some churches have less, but there's always somebody in the church who's not there because of their relationship with Jesus Christ. They're not there because they love Christ. And they're so thankful for what he did for them, dying for their sins. They're there trying to earn their way into God's good graces or earn their way into favor with man. They come to church every week. They might even be a leader in a church. They might even sit at the Lord's table and eat and drink. But they don't know Jesus. I want this sermon, I want this exposition of this passage of Scripture to do what I think Christ intended, which is to make anyone here this morning who hasn't truly trusted in Christ and come to him through this narrow door make you extremely uncomfortable, make you fear for your future, understand that your only hope is to come to Christ. What I don't want to do is cause anybody with a weak faith, anybody who has trusted in Christ, but you're struggling with doubt, you're struggling with weak faith, If you're in, if you've come through that door, if you've trusted in Christ and your only hope is in what he's done for you, he will never let you go. He is faithful. He will hold on to you. But I want you to be sure that you've come through that door, that you have come to Christ as he is presented in Scripture and you've trusted in his atoning work for your salvation. If you've truly repented and given yourself to him in faith, We are not saved by knowing about Jesus. We are not saved by what we do for Jesus. We are saved by what Jesus did for us at the cross. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus told another parable about somebody else who was left outside the kingdom. This man was rich in this life, prosperous, powerful in this life. But then he died and he went to hell. And... As he looked, and again, here's one of these stories that Jesus told that seemed that he was aware of what was happening among the elect by the saved, those who were taken to be at the wedding feast. He's aware that Lazarus, who is a crippled beggar at his gate, that Lazarus was with Abraham celebrating in the eternal kingdom in heaven. And so he cries out to Abraham and he says, Abraham, could you send Lazarus back to earth to warn my siblings, to warn my brothers so that they would know, so that they would not end up here with me in hell. You know, it's kind of like that time travel question. He had a chance. He was hoping for a chance to be able to at least warn the people he cared about so they wouldn't end up where he is. And Abraham says that can't happen. The door's closed. The door's closed for you and they have an opportunity. The door is open for them, but that door is given in the writings of Abraham and Moses and the prophets. As he says it, it is, I'll quote it to you here from Luke 16. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone were to rise from the dead. He wasn't talking about Lazarus, he's talking about himself. God has provided the door. It is narrow, but it is still open. And so Jesus says, interestingly, strive to enter through the narrow door. That word strive is somewhat of a unique word in the original language. It's a word that was used in athletics or in the military. And the word meant in a very graphic way 
to struggle, wrestle, give it all you got, or maybe leave it all on the playing field. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Now we know from the rest of scripture and the rest of everything Jesus taught, he's not saying work your way into heaven. Go to more Bible studies. Be more faithful in Sunday morning attendance. Read the Bible more often. Pray more often. That's not what he's saying. He's talking not about the work, good works that you do. He's talking about your attitude. He's talking about your heart. Leave it all on the playing field. Leave it all. The world's rewards, the world's esteem, the world's benefits, the world's blessings. Leave it all. Set aside all your idols. Give your life over to Christ. Enter through the narrow door. That's what he's saying. Stop hanging around the narrow door and enter in by faith, trusting in what Christ has done for you. Another one of those movies that shows my age is uh, that I enjoy watching every once in a while is Dead Poet Society. And in that story, the teacher of a, at an exclusive boys' school transforms a group of teenage boys by teaching them the concept of carpe diem, which is the Latin term for seize the day. But unfortunately, Mr. Keating in that story, the teacher was telling them to throw off all authority. Do what you want to do. Don't listen to your parents. Don't listen to your teachers. Assert yourself. Live for your own desires. And that is a wide path that many have followed that leads to destruction. But scripture has its own carpe diem message. And let me close with that from Hebrews chapter 4. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience as so many of those who have been near to the kingdom but not going through the narrow door have experienced. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard message. If we had been designing the eternal kingdom, we would have made the door big and wide. But Lord, big and wide doors that accept us in our sinful condition can only lead to hell. It is only by grace that we could ever know you. Only by grace that we could have eternal life. Only by grace that we might be saved. Father, thank you for providing that narrow door. Thank you for providing the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who are in the process of coming through that door, embracing Christ by faith, I pray that they would be encouraged, that your spirit is at work in them, and that you will complete the work that you've begun in them. But for any who have been living in the misguided lie that just being around the kingdom is enough, Lord, I pray that they would not find themselves outside the feast on that day. Lord, please work by your spirit to produce faith and to produce repentance in the hearts of those who now are lost. And Lord, we think of many whom we love, many friends and family members who desperately need to know Christ. Please work in their hearts as we think of their names even now. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.